welcome to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. Thank you to FIU's Disability Resource Center for providing transcription services. In this episode, I talk with Brenton Gicker and Chelsea Swift of Cahoots, Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets, a 24-7 mobile crisis intervention program of the White Bird Clinic in Eugene, Oregon. Cahoots, which pairs a mental health crisis worker and a medic in a big white van, has been receiving national attention as a model for a crisis response alternative to the police or fire department. Chelsea and Brenton share what a typical shift is like for them and how 911 calls are routed to them rather than the police for certain situations. We discuss the cost-effective approach of cahoots, as well as the humanitarian benefits, such as de-escalation and fewer arrests, by utilizing the skills of medical and mental health professionals rather than the police. Brenton and Chelsea both share how they got into this work and how they began as crisis workers and then each decided to become medics. Brenton, a registered nurse, and Chelsea, an emergency medical technician. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Hey, Brenton. Hey, Chelsea. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Let's just get right into it. You know, can you take us through what it's like to go on a shift with you too? Well, I usually work 12-hour shifts and... Um... Oftentimes, you know, you go in service, like w- what'll happen is me and my partner will, will go to the, to our, our base and, um, get our equipment ready to you know, make sure the van is stocked properly. Make sure we have, you know, the, the equipment we, we, you know, that our equipment is, uh, ready to use. And we'll, uh, we're, you know, we use police radios. We're dispatched by the same people that dispatch the police and the fire department. So we'll, we'll put ourselves in service, let them know that we're available and um, a lot of times you come in service and, uh, you know, there might be um, a stack of calls holding, you know, and um, so you, uh, and that can be stressful, you know, because you, you don't want people to have to, to wait longer than you want them to. You don't want calls that uh, should be handled by cahoots to end up getting handled by the police or the fire department because we're not, you know, immediately available. So there's this kind of triaging that goes on and it can be kind of a frenzy. You know, there was a, uh, reporter from the um the Salem reporter that did a story this week about cahoots and his ride along and I think that um his shift with us I think was a good like kind of representation of like how a shift can go like our um it wasn't too hectic but we had a you know a steady flow of calls and we had some good calls but the, like the first one involved a woman who um was having some like uh paranoia and anxiety she she thought the the neighbor above her um, you know, he can be kind of loud or whatever. And she, she felt like he was intentionally trying to like torment her by like stomping around and stuff. I don't think that was actually the case, but she'd called the police to try to make a noise complaint. And I think because the police had like dealt with this woman before, they're basically like, you know, you're not really reporting a crime and we think you have some like emotional problems. So like, we're going to send cahoots to talk to you and she's familiar with us. So she's okay with that. You know, she's okay with, um, you know, getting a response from us, like makes her feel better. You know, it, it doesn't make her feel like uh, dismissed necessarily, you know? Um, so, you know, so we came out to talk to her and, um, you know, and of course the, the, the thing, issue with the neighbor is just a, you know, a piece of what's going on. You know, she has all these other like issues she's struggling with, you know? So we come out and kind of 
talk to her and problem solve with her and, you know, talk about coping skills with her and, you know, ways she can, you know, distract herself or maybe put her energy elsewhere. Um, that kind of thing. Um, you know, so you have a call like that and then maybe the, the next call was a higher intensity call where you have like a woman on a bridge, like threatening to jump off of it to kill herself. And, and the police responded and we responded and, um, you know, ended up taking the woman to the hospital because she seemed like she was pretty, you know, imminently dangerous and, uh, you know, and then it just goes from there. Then the next call is a, a checking on an elderly woman in her apartment because she, she called uh, 911 sounding confused. Maybe she has some, some, some health problems or some mental health problems. And, you know, so we get sent out to check on her, make, she, make sure she's doing okay, kind of talk to her about what's going on. Um, and then our next call might be to check on a, a homeless alcoholic who's passed out in the field and, um, you know, and somebody saw them and thought they might need help. And so we get sent to check on them. Maybe we just make sure they're all right. Maybe we end up taking them to the emergency room or the detox center, you know, that can go a lot of different directions. But uh, yeah, so we, we respond to a lot of different types of calls, um, a lot of different types of calls that come into the 911 system that really might be better addressed by a service like ours than the, the police or um, EMS. So, okay. So the calls come in through 911. So you've got this relationship and I know that the organization goes back something like 30 years, right? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that history and how you and the police work together, but also there's there's kind of a different goals, even though overall some of the goals are the same? Yeah, so CAHOOTS is a Department of Whitebird Clinic, which started in the late 60s. A bunch of college students from the University of Oregon and doctors started this collective environment for people to enable themselves to... Um, get their needs met. And that became a place that even though the landscape was kind of different, people were on the streets, but using different substances, um, they were brought to Whitebird by community members and by police. Um, so that was kind of always this bizarre function of Whitebird Clinic, which grew to have a medical clinic and a dental clinic and counseling and outpatient drug and alcohol treatment on um, just building on like, okay, we're kind of doing this, this radical alternative way and we can, we're good at it. So we're going to keep meeting their needs. And one of the services that we've had every day since Whitebird has been open since 1969 is our 24-hour crisis phone line and drop-in center. And that team in official and unofficial capacities and station wagons and um, became the bummer squad who would go out to some folks who like a lot of the people call the crisis line who've maybe never engaged in mental health systems whatsoever, or maybe so many of their barriers are due to agoraphobia and not leaving the house or institutional trauma of they go to try to get their needs met at the hospital and it goes really poorly. And now it's going to take years for them to even get there again. So uh, the bummer squad from the crisis department started going out and meeting with folks um, and that reputation combined with the fact that the police were already bringing a lot of people who were maybe having a bad psychedelic experience in public or um, were not appropriate for the jail or hospital. They took funding and diverted it from hiring new police officers in 1989 and gave that funding to put a cahoots van on the road, which I believe started as either one eight-hour shift for like five days a week or or maybe it started off as a 12-hour shift um 
Now we operate uh, 31 hours in a 24-hour period in Eugene. We've expanded to the smaller city next to us, Springfield, where we run a 24-hour service. Um, And there's so much that comes with being integrated with the non-emergency number being how you access Cahoots. But I think what's really cool about a lot of the examples that Brenton gave just now is like, those calls did not come in as organic, hello, I would like Cahoots to respond. Those were calls that somebody called 911. And so often like people's predicaments are not necessarily an emergency of safety, but it's an emergency of a resource crisis. That's an emergency for them. So they call 911. And because we are this official part of like that triaging system, this could go to the fire department, this could go to police, or this could go to cahoots. We are just as much of a considered option. Like that is where we really get to see the full capacity of what it looks like for non-enforcement response. Because we could have this crisis line and, and some people would access it. But the reality is this like, and especially in marginalized communities where maybe they run out of minutes and the only number they can dial is 911 on their phone. Like we are conditioned to call 911. People who see somebody being weird on the street, they're not going to call, they're not going to Google a crisis line. They're going to call 911. So being a part of that system lets us catch those things that would be better handled by us. Yeah. I want to talk more about that. So, you know, that article that came out and a lot of the discussions about um, this type of crisis response talks about the economic savings to communities, right? For having this type and not having to, like, there's a statistic here that, you know, Eugene, Oregon saves between six and seven million annually by contracting with Cahoots and that the police department's budget is 60 million versus Cahoots budget, which is 1.6 million, right? But what I'm really, and that's great. I think, you know, because taxpayers, right, they want to, they want more bang for their buck. Like money's important, right? Funding is important. What's also important, and I know is important to both of you, is decriminalization of homelessness, you know, people with mental health issues ending up in jail and lives being saved. So I want to just read some statistics to you and get your response thinking about the work you do and how it relates to this. This is from the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI. They say, you know, um, that, of course, when people have a mental health crisis, they're more likely to actually encounter police than get medical help. And that 2 million people with mental illness are booked into jails each year nationally, right? 15% of men and 30% of women booked into jails have a serious mental health condition. And 83% of jail inmates with a mental illness did not have access to needed treatment. 83%. That's almost all of them, right? And then they end up with a criminal record or more of a record than they maybe already had, which then becomes a barrier to employment, right? And the cycle of crisis and marginalization continues. So I was hoping you could speak to that in the work you do. Yeah, Oregon actually like pretty consistently ranks the worst in the nation for um, accessibility of mental health and addiction services. So I mean, it's really bad here. I mean, there are good people doing good work, obviously, you know, but there are um, just huge um, uh, deficits, you know, and so 
I guess one thing, um, you know, something that Chelsea said a while ago, like that I, I thought was uh, insightful is that like she was at a meeting with there was police and business owners and social service providers and different people talking about these problems, you know, and to some extent, um, everybody's kind of been signed up for um, something they didn't mean to sign up for. Like the police, it's sometimes it's easy to imagine the police like out like um, just like hassling mentally ill people or something. And I'm not saying that never happens, but like most, but to a large extent, like the, the police are dealing with all these people and, you know, who they maybe don't feel prepared to deal with or, you know, didn't like, you know, they didn't get involved in police work to deal with, you know, people having mental health problems. But it's becoming, you know, it's become this huge part of their work precisely because the mental health system itself is so broken. You know, so cops, you know, taking somebody, a mentally ill person to jail or whatever, you know, it, it's not necessarily because they, you know, want to you know, persecute the person. It's because there's, they're not sure what else to do with them because the resources that person should have just aren't, aren't available. So there, yeah, there is this, this, uh, you know, as the, the mental health system and um, services for homeless people and, and addiction treatment services have been defunded, the kind of responsibility for dealing with those people has been transferred to the police and emergency medical services who, uh, who, are, who are just constantly, who are just putting out fires, you know? Yeah, there's no waiting list for 911. <laughs> um, right. You will get a response. You'll get a response and, and some not sometimes, most of the time, people just need to be heard and validated and and they want someone to show up on their doorstep when a single mom is exasperated and her six-year-old has gotten a butter knife and is threatening with her. She might call 911 and, and does she want her six-year-old to be incarcerated? Usually not, um, but she has no other option because good community care is not focused on. And a way that I always frame this, um, which for me is objective, but maybe not for other folks, is like, I started this work as a crisis worker. And in the last year, I became an EMT, which is kind of a path I never expected to be on. But when I was showing up as a crisis worker, I had to bring every tool within myself, my problem solving, my ability to interact with people in crisis, my ability to like use my privilege to interact with the police on behalf of folks, um, my ability to kind of problem solve between families who are fighting. Um, those are my tools. And, and now that I'm an EMT, I have a couple of other medications and tools that I can use. But then when we think outwardly, if we're trying to think of a solution on a call that has come in through a 911 dispatch center, we get to consider the hospital. We get to consider shelters, youth shelters, crisis centers, medical clinics, urgent care. So those are our tools outwardly. Police, when they think of the tools that they have on them, they're like, oh, I have me. And then I have my taser. And then I have my gun. And I have my body camera. And I have a long rifle in the car. And I can call for cover and like if it gets really wild we could get the bear cat out right they have like all these tools that like me I'm excited to narcan someone <laughs> so if I think that's about to happen I'm gonna like get the stuff ready in the van and come out on the call ready for it so on um, they have different tools and, and then their tools outwardly are much more limited it's jail hospital or inaction so looking at it that way just when the outcomes are that limited, it gets on um, the risk and the violence and um, 
the lack of solutions beyond just solving a situation in the moment, just that is not an option that is there. You know, speaking to, um, you know, you were talking about the, the article and the emphasis on economics and the, you know, the cost saving and stuff. Um, I think one thing that's uh, really cool about Cahoots and because, you know, realistically, when we have to accept the fact that like on some level, like we're all stuck with each other, like, like in our society, like there's a bunch of people with conflicting interests, conflicting views, and we're all kind of stuck with each other. And like, and so we have to sort of like navigate that and sort of reconcile that, um, you know, without you know, compromising who we are and what our you know, values are, but also just accepting that there's a bunch of different people with different interests and different needs and different views. Um, so like with cahoots, like let's say, for example, like somebody calls 911 saying they're going to kill themselves, but they're, you know, they don't have a gun to their head. They don't have a noose around their neck. They're just really upset and they want somebody to come to their aid. You send cahoots instead of the police you're saving the taxpayer money so the people that, you know, aren't, aren't, aren't concerned about the welfare of the mentally ill, you know, they can say, oh, well, that's good, you know, that they're sending cahoots instead of the police because the cahoots is cheaper. Also, if the police go and they have a bad interaction with this person and it results in that person getting hurt, that could result in lawsuits for the city that could, you know, that could have a, so from, from a humanitarian perspective, you know, we might be preventing somebody from getting hurt. We might be, you know, providing the care that's like, you know, really kind of more appropriate for the circumstances. But, you know, for those people that are more concerned about, you know, the fiscal conservatives, the people that, you know, um, are concerned about, you know, what their tax dollars are being spent on um, can know that, oh, well, actually, like, Cahoots is, is saving the community money in these, like, myriad of ways. So I think there's actually, like, the, the humanitarian and the, like, you know, economic interests actually, like, um, are complementary not, um, they're not, you know, opposing each other. Um, so I think a lot of people can get behind cahoots, like just on, you know, no matter where they're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's really no reason why every community and especially every major city should not have this type of program. And that is probably what, why a lot of places are talking about this kind of work, you know, and I'm sure you've, I don't know if, you know, people consult with you about this or how that works, but it's, it's like, Every you're right. Like the, all those interests can align with this, and it's sh- it's really something that should be like a win-win for everybody. Right. Because in a lot of these situations too, like you know, say we handle a call, we either relieve the police on a call, or we we respond to a call. Like in, in lieu of them, you know, they're freed up to do something they want to do. They're instead of responding to a call they don't want to respond to, they're doing something they they, they want to do while we're we're getting to do what we want to do. You know. So the yeah, we get to. Usually, if we can keep the police out of things or the fire department out of things, you know, usually everybody's happy about it. We're happy about it. The client's happy about it. The other agencies are happy about it. You know, it's that's it's, it is kind of a you know, a win-win scenario most of the time. Yeah, and as far as like so many cities have been reaching out, um, and I've been involved with some of the work with some of the bigger cities on which has been so valuable too, because talking and giving um, presentations in Oakland and Baltimore and teleconferencing with people in New York City, like we're not perfect. We have a lot to learn. And in those cities, there's a bit more urgency. Um, And what already exists in those cities is maybe just pure mental health teams on 
responding as an alternative crisis response or the co-responder model is really popular and exists in a lot of places right now, which is a clinician, a mental health clinician, and an officer in a patrol vehicle. And and yeah, you're going to get more skills on scene. So back to the, the tools that are there, that's going to look different, but you still have a police officer in uniform showing up to a call. You still have the only transport option of a police vehicle. You still have the cost of an officer um, and the cost of like a psychiatrist or a higher level than we are on crisis workers. And that can mean a lot of things in terms of like experience and licensure. Um, But our model is, is very unique and not yet replicated as far as like I'm aware in this work on because we work with the crisis worker medic duo. So an example of how our model gets very magical um, is a call that I remember from my first training shift ever three years ago where police were sent for a prowler in a neighborhood for a woman who was knocking on doors and she got called in as trying to force entry. She got a police response. She was very clearly psychotic. So they were like, cool, let's get cahoots to try to see what they can offer, see if they can help come up with this solution. And this woman was presenting very much mental health issues. So the crisis worker got in there and was trying to de-escalate, trying to do some problem solving. And then the medic partner on shift looks on top of her refrigerator sees a bottle of antibiotics, pours it out, realizes, nope, none of the pills have been taken. It was prescribed three days ago. And he was like, oh, you mentioned you've been smelling differently. Is it possible that you have a urinary tract infection? And like out of the deep psychotic state, she was able to confirm that. And so that was like a medical issue causing a mental health presentation that came in as a criminal call. Wow. And that is your work right there. I mean, that is such a great example of she could have ended up in jail. Like in most towns and cities and communities, she would have been in jail. She could end up getting shot by a homeowner. Right. Breaking into a home and getting shot on site. Yeah. That whole situation could have really escalated into something ugly. Yeah. That's really good teamwork to have all that come together like that. I mean, that's incredible. It also like is what kind of gives us access within this EMS and emergency medicine world that we operate in, because that also looks like when we are transporting someone to the hospital, because we have the medical knowledge, we can consult with a doctor. And oftentimes we can get folks directly admitted the same as when the police bring somebody on a mental health hold, they bring them straight back to the secure side of the emergency room. When the fire department brings somebody in on an ambulance on a stretcher, um, they get somebody right into a medical room. So this like very professional experience model, we are able to access a lot of those same things and uh, not just be like a peer support worker sitting with somebody in the ER lobby for two hours until they get seen, which is so important too, um, but how we kind of move on beyond that scope. Yeah, I wanted to ask you both about your training. Chelsea, you mentioned that you've become an EMT, but you started as a crisis worker. What kind of, how did that kind of go? And what was that original training like? And then how have things kind of progressed? 
Uh, my work started off in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. I was selling Doc Martens to all the cool punks who worked at the needle exchange across the street. Um, and I started volunteering on the drop-in there, uh, running showers for all the crest punks and train traveling kids and deadheads. And, um, and then I got hired on as an outreach counselor. And while I worked there, we lost our drop-in. We were actually kicked out by the founder of the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic. Um, and we became the Homeless Homeless Youth Alliance and San Francisco Needle Exchange. And all of our work was on the streets. So we did outreach in Golden Gate Park and on Haight Street and on like super harm reduction. We're going to work with you on what you want to work with on... And a lot of that just looked like conversations in the park and granola bars. Um, and then I moved up to Eugene just due to San Francisco not being the most sustainable place to live in the world when you're <laughs> being an outreach worker for, uh, yeah, that population. And um, found White Bird Clinic and I was like, whoa, okay, so this is kind of what I expected to find when I moved to San Francisco that being like the hippie weird collective that Wiper Clinic is. And I ran the needle exchange here in town in Eugene for a little bit. And, and I had some hesitance with working with cahoots because I came into this work in San Francisco where stakes were kind of higher and police would walk up to me in the park and be like, hello, are you the agency who hands out needles in the park? And we would say, no, goodbye, sir. As walk away with my bag full of needles in the mm -hmm. park. And, um, and my clients there were very, very, very much impacted by um, like aggressive policing every morning. And um, then I kind of had this head switch where I was like, this job exists. I'm in this town. I'm working with this population. I'm doing case management at Whitebird Clinic while running the needle exchange. And I don't have a lot of trauma around police work uh yet <laughs> that would come after um and i i just felt really called to like access the fact that i had these skills and experience and what does it look like for somebody like me to hold this role um and so a lot of my experience of kind of working with people in non-traditional environments and people with all sorts of mental health presentations um socioeconomic backgrounds uh, super like cross-cultural work um, was really helpful. And then I just like had to learn the really important stuff like uh, counseling skills. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, which uh, kind of hilariously came last. And then uh, through seeing calls like the, that one I described, it was like, well, if I'm doing this work, I'm good at it. Like I feel so powerful about when I'm able to walk into a scene and there's three cops and six firefighters and they're kind of amped up and saying like, we don't know what to do. And, and I walk on scene and I'm like, Oh, Hey Joe, come on, get in the van. Like, see you later boys. Uh, <laughs> if there were ways that I could keep like building my power to advocate for people, I became an ENT. So. That's an awesome story. I love it. So you just kept increasing, you know, what you were doing and your skills to really be there for people who need it. Yeah, it's been like very, very special and dear to me work. What about you, Brenton? Um, I mean, I think like the uh, course of things is kind of similar to Chelsea's because I, uh, I also began um, on Cahoots as a crisis worker. And I still, um, you know, 
often like prefer to work in that role. Though I guess I, 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 I like doing everything and I like, yeah, I just, if, if calls are interesting, if calls are meaningful, if calls are exciting, like, you know, I want to handle them even if they're regardless of whether they're more mental health or more uh, medical. But um, I, um, you know, I, I volunteered for Whitebird before I worked for Cahoots. I also volunteered for some other like community organizations. I, um, and then I got hired into different positions at Whitebird you know, usually kind of like, like sort of case managing kind of receptionist, like kind of, um, you know, I had, I had different roles at Whitebird and then, um, you know, and I did all the different classes Whitebird had to offer, you know, there's like basic crisis intervention, advanced crisis intervention, counseling theory and practice, suicide prevention, et cetera. So, you know, I did all these classes that kind of like qualified me for cahoots, um, to an extent. And so I, you know, at a certain point I was encouraged to, um, to work on cahoots and, uh, you know, and so I did, and then I was, you know, working with medics, you know, I was working with people that were, you know, had whatever level of EMT training, some people that were in paramedic school or had just graduated from paramedic school or about to go to paramedic school. And, um, you know, so then I had that exposure and I thought, you know, like I got more interested in the medical stuff and, um, you know, and there's people on cahoots that are, so you have like your crisis workers that just like kind of lead mental health interventions, then you have your medical people that lead medical interventions. And then you have a lot of stuff that's kind of like, you know, either person might take the lead on, but there's a lot of people that are cross-trained, you know, that can work in either capacity. And that allows you to like work with anybody. So you have like a, a greater range of partners and just allows you to have this like more versatility on the job itself. So I wanted to get cross-trained. And so I did um, EMT basic class. I did an EMT intermediate class and then I got, um, you know, got trained as a registered nurse. Um, so yeah, cahoots, um, yeah, exposed me to a lot and, uh, you know, created a lot of, uh, you know, helped me, uh, made me interested in new things and, um, yeah, just kind of opened a lot of doors for me. You know, you two both have really powerful stories and the work that you're doing is so powerful and impactful. And, you know, as we're kind of wrapping up the end of this interview, I just want to give you the opportunity to really, if there's anything more you want to share with listeners, you know, as this is an opportunity for you to educate people who are listening. I mean, there's been a lot of education happening with what you've been saying, but if just there's anything you want to share, now's the time. Yeah, I think this work can feel really challenging on some days because it feels like we are just another piece of the system the system being so many things on whether it's like really institutionalized mental health care that sometimes the best option we have is the room with four white walls in the hospital um, or the calls where it was helpful that cahoots could come up with a different outcome and then things went sideways on scene and it resulted in arrest. Um, those situations suck a lot of the time and they, and they happen in front of us. Um, but what is really immeasurable with our work is on um, the really benign stuff. Like, I don't know that if the welfare check on the person on the sidewalk, bringing them to the sobering house, that could have been the time that they got um, hit by a car, a drunk driver, or that could have been the time that they, got woken up by police aggressively and got really aggro and got a ticket or had a violent encounter that resulted in um, a some prison time or some sort of serious charge or could result in death. And I think 
and Eugene, we kind of have this funny dynamic where um, people call non-emergency too much because they're, they're trying to access cahoots too much. <laughs> and for those subject down calls, like we, we have all these good hearted liberals who are driving into work and they're like, oh, I see somebody sleeping. The first thing that the call taker says is, okay, can you tell if they're conscious or breathing? Oh no, well, I'm too afraid to check. So that call has now just bumped up to number one top priority call for the whole city, frankly. If we're not available, they might send police because police have Narcan, police have an AED in their car. Um, and more times than not, more and more times than not, that person was just sleeping and that is their best option. And um, so just like challenging people to be really critical of of that thing, like, is this an emergency for that person? Um, or is this an emergency for me? Does this make me feel uncomfortable when that person might potentially be living like this every day? And and that goes to th things like suicide too. Um, it can end up being really isolating and stigmatizing if somebody confides in you that they're feeling like they want to hurt themselves and you're, you pick up the phone and call 911 first thing without asking more questions because for them, they might have these thoughts every day of their life. And they're like, whoa, I disclosed to that person that I'm experiencing this and I'm so weird that they had to call 911. So um, just like challenging people to recognize in those moments to just kind of like take the step, assess why they might be reaching out for the external response and, and consider the risks, of course, for um, different neighborhoods, different responses happen. So somebody swinging a bat in a park where uh, we're down the street from the Mission and the Sobering Center, cahoots might come, somebody swinging a bat in the, a park of the Southwest Hills of Eugene that's a lot more affluent, they might get every cop car, lights and sirens. And those outcomes look really different. Obviously, advocating for in your community for non-enforcement responses is the dream and the hope, but the small moments are the really meaningful things in our work. And also those small moments can be done by anyone. Yeah. It's, um, I wish I had some like, you know, um, really wise things to say, you know, but this, this work is really um, emotionally, morally, intellectually um, challenging and complicated. I mean, I mean, like I agonize over these questions like all day, every day about like, what the solution is to these issues. And, um, you know, one thing I think about is, uh, you know, on the one hand, like, I think like cahoots is this, um, radical kind of like it's cutting edge, it's innovative, it's like unique. Um, and it is like, um, it's kind of this thing. It's like, it's time has come. Um, but you know, so like on the one hand we are like, um, there is a certain amount of like social transformation that comes with it. And there is, um, I mean, we, we do definitely, we save lives and we improve lives and um, we improve the, the quality of our community, but we're also not like dealing with, you know, whenever these articles about like cahoots as a solution to homelessness and stuff like that, I'm like, we're not a solution to homelessness. Like, what are you talking about? Like, there's all of these, like, we're not doing anything to like, like we make the lives of some like unhoused people better. We, maybe, you know, lessen the burden of like homelessness on the community to like in certain ways or, um, you know, and we can, you know, handle these problems in place of, you know, other organizations that are maybe more, you know, expensive or less, you know, um, sympathetic to them or whatever. But, uh, 
you know, but we are kind of like the police and kind of like the fire department and the emergency room to a large extent, just kind of like we're, we're a crisis service, you know, we're, we're, we're putting out fires, you know, and without necessarily, you know, dealing with the like underlying problems, you know, so like, um, we're, who should be franchised and exported and, you know, molded to, you know, different communities all over the country and all over the world. But, uh, um, you know, but there are these just, you know, deeply seated problems with our society. And until those are, you know, addressed and remedied, you know, there's the need for things like cahoots is just going to continue to grow, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I think you did a really great job explaining that, that it's a crisis response to, uh, human responses to deep structural and systemic problems really. And as long as those problems exist, there always will be this, will be a crisis. Yeah. Um, but you help to address that crisis in a much less harmful way, a much more supportive way. And, you know, I want to just thank both of you for coming on the podcast and for doing the work in the community. It's an honor. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place.